a reading from the prophet Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, these words, really this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, that you would help us to know how we might enter their questions and inhabit them and how we might listen to the things that Jesus has to say to us uh, this morning about knowing you and being with you. Would you guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the season of Epiphany uh, we've been saying this morning, uh, and it's a season in which we remember that in Jesus, this one Jewish man 
uh, that God is redeeming the whole world, not just one nation. Uh, and so this is a season when we read stories like the story of the Magi and their visit uh, to Jesus. And we acknowledge that the greatness of Jesus is so great that it overflows into the whole of the world, which means it's a great time for us to sort of tag on to that missionary class because we want to understand what is the church's role in connecting Jesus to the entirety of the world, not just our own family or our own little, uh, the, the bubble in which we find ourselves living, but how do we actually think about how Jesus relates and continues to relate to the whole of the world? Um, now, one of the challenges, I think, for the church in a season like this is that we immediately acknowledge that, um, that Jesus is for the whole of the world. Uh, Jesus is for every neighborhood. Jesus is for all peoples. But as we begin to think about the way the church has sometimes lived with this sort of missionary mandate, or its call to be in the world and to reveal Jesus, we immediately get stuck in stories where we've done that badly. <laughs> we've either, on the one hand, maybe failed to do it at all, we've just receded into our own little enclave and we've been quite content to live among ourselves and not connect with neighbor, or sometimes we've connected with neighbor in imperialistic kinds of ways. In other words, we've simply embraced our culture and sought to transmit it to another culture. We've not respected some of those differences, and so there's a lot of hurt in the world. The legacy of Christianity in the world is complicated. It's not an even story of the overflow of beauty, but it's also the overflow of pain. And some of us have grown up in church contexts that even today, we still feel like we're digging out from some of the ways the church has hurt us. So how do we think about these kinds of questions over the next few weeks together? We're going to do it by looking at the kinds of questions that we might actually be asking and live with ourselves that linger in our own minds and our imaginations. What are the questions that you have about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Now, this is really important because one of the problems of the church, I think, is frankly this, that sometimes when you show up at church, it feels like questions are off limits. Have you ever felt that? <laughs> you know, you come into a group of Christians who've been following Jesus for any length of time, and we speak with such certainty and such beautiful clarity that if you have a question, you might think, who in this crowd would I even entrust the question to without feeling like an absolute fool? We live with questions. We live with doubts, and it's a helpful thing, I think, if we explore our own questions and our own doubts, if we're going to think about the honest way in which we might encounter the questions, the doubts, the uncertainties of our neighbor. And today we're starting with this one question, is it possible to know God, or can anyone really know God? Let me give you a couple stories. When I was a college student, yes, that was many years ago now, as you might be able to discern but in my freshman year, there was a young woman uh, that was in our Christian circles. She was an artist, uh, and uh, she would often show up at the dining hall, and she would take two trays, not one, and she would sit at a table by herself, and there'd be another tray, and there'd be another glass. And then when some person, usually 
some guy that's sort of wanting to sit with her would come up and say, oh, are you sitting alone? She would say, no, I'm sitting with Jesus. And, you know, when she would tell us this story, we'd be like, that is just really weird. Like, that's just, uh, that's some kind of messed up. And uh, this was her way of sort of reminding herself of Jesus' presence. It was also sort of maybe a not-so-subtle way of revealing Jesus to her unsuspecting neighbor, these men, generally. A few years ago, I was talking to a college student that was, had been in our community. Um, he had grown up in the church. He'd grown up in a deeply religious family. Everyone seemed to have a really strong sense of faith in his family. Um, and he, he wanted to talk because he said, I, I just don't feel the kinds of things that you feel. Uh, when I listen to people talk about faith, or my family even talk about faith, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I understand what they're talking about. Uh, it felt strange for him to talk about Jesus the way he might talk about a girlfriend or a close friend, right? Those that, uh, even though he'd grown up in the context of faith, the context of religion, he never felt like his own experience of God fit the experiences that he would hear other people talking about. God felt remote, distance, far away. About a year after we started City Church, I was in a gathering of church planters out on the West Coast. You might think that's already problematic, but there I was. With this group of church planters, we gathered from across the country, and all of us had started churches in either university contexts or we'd started churches in center city contexts. In other words, we're ministering pretty much to a gentrified population and pretty much to very educated individuals. And uh, so there we are sharing our experiences with one another. It was a really rich moment. And then one of the uh, pastors sort of drops the bomb on us and he says this. He said, do you sometimes fear that we have things wrong? That we're wrong? that we're just playing an elaborate game of make-believe. Do you ever feel that way, Tuck? How can you know a God that you can't see, touch, or embrace? It's an important question partly because everything inside of human existence, everything about your existence as a human being, from the moment you were born into this world, anchors you where? In a physical universe in an earthly reality that's very physical, very tangible, very concrete, and very social. Connections begin to form almost instantly as your mother, your father, a caregiver, peers into your eyes, and mirror neurons are firing already from the very beginning. You're learning how to be a human being in the context of other tangible human experiences. It's real. It's interesting. We live in Philadelphia, right? And the Eastern State Penitentiary is over in the Fairmount neighborhood. And one of the great experiments of that was that the Quakers thought that if you just isolated people and gave them enough time alone, that there would be some sort of reformation of the soul that happened and life. But the reality was there was some kind of a reformation, but you begin to go nuts because you're social. You're meant to live with real personal interactions with other people. In other words, physical presence is profoundly important. If um, Stacy and I, in a conversation, are talking about something and she says, 
I love you, Tuck, but she raises an eyebrow. Some things are firing around in my head. I'm thinking, is she serious? Because the words you're saying don't fit the facial expression that I've just experienced from you. Is there a tone of suspicion in her voice? See, there are all kinds of nonverbal cues that we're constantly looking at to try to understand the meaning of a circumstance or a situation. Maybe she'll reach out and touch my arm to reassure me that she loves me. Presence, connection. Maybe she'll back off. These things are so important. A child's first communication with a parent is almost entirely nonverbal. But the mirror neurons, as I said earlier, are firing with every coup, with every smile, with every facial expression, with every frown. The child is learning how to connect with other human beings. This is one of the remarkable things about Christianity. It's personal. It's personal. It's tangible. It's physical. It's interactive like that. Theologian Robert Jensen says that one of the truly unique features of Judaism and Christianity is that God is present within our world, not merely hovering above it or outside of it. He's intimately connecting and interacting with our world. He's there. He's present. You think about his interaction with Abraham when Judaism emerges and begins. And it's in that what? God speaks to him. He calls him to leave his family and to follow God into a land that he has yet to to reveal to him. This is the beginning of the Jewish faith, but it's interactive. It's conversant. God is a God who speaks He's a God who strikes up communication with his creature. He engages us. Read through the story of Scripture. You see it again in the story of Moses, who oddly is called to interact with God in this mysterious burning bush that isn't consumed. And once Israel is established as a nation, the communication continues because God raises up prophets who interact with his people, who communicate to his people, who call his people back to a deeper place of connection with God himself, usually when they're adrift. And ultimately, these stories the New Testament teaches us settles in the person of Jesus Christ, this one Jewish man, God in person in our world, who most intimately and most vulnerably reveals the unseen God. If we'd started at the beginning of John's gospel, you would remember those famous words where John in chapter 1, verse 18, articulates quite clearly what we all know, that the unseen God no one has seen, but Jesus Christ has revealed him. He's made him physically manifest to the world. It's a bold assertion, isn't it? Think about the text that we just, that we just read in John 14. Jesus here is interacting with his disciples. They're nervous. <laughs> they're anxious. They're unsettled. They're troubled. Why? Because Jesus has begun to talk more and more about his departure from our world. Who are these disciples? These are men and women who have hung their hopes on Jesus as Messiah. They believed his words. 
They've followed him around. They've seen him do miracle. They've seen him heal people. They have watched the way he interacts with the marginal of his society. They have seen so many things in the person of Jesus, and they've given up so many things in order to sort of build their hope and their life and their identity around the person of Jesus that, of course, they were troubled when Jesus begins to say, I'm going away. I'm going to die. I'm going to my father's house. They're anxious, and Jesus seeks to reassure them in the midst of their anxiety. And so all of a sudden, in those moments of communication, you can imagine their perplexity, their uncertainty. They thought Jesus would restore Israel to its great place of independency, right? But all of a sudden, what did Jesus, what, is this, what does he mean? What is going on in these words? And these words that we just read this morning are words that he offers as a comfort to them in their troubledness. Two things. Room with God and the way to your room. <laughs> room with God and the way to your room. So first, a room with God. These are words that very often, if you've ever been to a Christian funeral or a memorial service, you've heard said. We recite them in places of our own trouble when we're anxious about death and we're anxious about what follows and we're seeking to sort of anchor our experience of this trouble in the words of Jesus himself. So Jesus says, there are many rooms in my father's house and I'm preparing one for you. I'm preparing a place for you. A few verses later, Jesus will use the same word that we translate room to say, we will come to make our home with you. What's Jesus trying to communicate to the disciples? These are words about place. They're words about belonging to a certain place, particularly God's place, his house. Almost certainly they would have associated this with the temple, perhaps. But Jesus has something even greater in mind here. He's talking about our at-homeness with God himself. Maybe in the future, certainly I think now, Jesus wants us to understand the at-homeness that he has secured with us in the very presence of God. And what he tells the disciples here in their trouble is you belong to that place. There's room for you in God's place. There's room for you in the presence of God. You have relationship with God the Father because you have relationship with me. That's what Jesus is saying. And so he says, you trust in God, so trust also in me. He's asking the disciples to understand how he connects them to God's home. There's room for you in the Father's house because of your life with Jesus. Second thing, the way to this place, this room. How do we get there? How do we get a life with God like that? Is there a roadmap that you could share with me about that, right? Um, it's clear that the disciples are still puzzled by Jesus's sort of words, right? It's almost as though he speaks in riddles because they're processing everything through the world that they know, the things that they already believe, right? <laughs> the settled reality that seems so apparent to them. But Jesus is talking to them about a reality that is almost unfathomable. Our presence in God's presence. And Thomas has questions. 
um, likely everyone else has questions, but the thing we begin to learn about Thomas in the gospel stories is that he's at least willing to ask his questions, right? He's not, he doesn't sort of sit on them. He doesn't hold them. Uh, he, he extroverts those questions like almost immediately. Well, um, you know, actually, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. There's something comforting about that in Thomas's question here, and certainly the one post-resurrection that we remember and recite frequently. But the beauty of this is that, look, God can handle the questions you have. The problem is that we get so secure in what we already know, or maybe we're so defensive about what we think we already know, that we actually don't have enough questions for God. You've been in a relational context where, this happened to me just a few weeks ago, I think Stacy and I were arguing about something, I don't remember what it was, Stacy's got a furrowed brow by the way right now, a little non-verbal is going on, but we were having this sort of conversation and, and, I, and she said something and I responded and she said, why do you always respond with answers? Ouch. Why didn't you ask a question. Have you been in a relational setting like that where you have answers that you're just always so willing to extend to someone and you're not willing to be curious about that which they've observed in you and so you don't ask the question? Thomas asks questions and he wants to know what Jesus is talking about. These are the people that are closest to Jesus of anyone on earth. These are men and women who have lived with him, seen him, touched him, embraced him the way I might embrace someone that I haven't seen for a long time. They saw Jesus visibly. Thomas asks this question about the destination that Jesus has in mind and also about the road, the way. Could we Google map that Jesus, maybe? I would love to sort of imagine what the nonverbal exchanges were going on. <laughs> Can you imagine you're in that discipleship group with Jesus, you're following him, and Jesus starts to say these things, and you think, I don't know what he's talking about, do you? And you're just mumbling under your breath, and you're looking over at you know, Martha or someone, and you like, I don't, I don't get it. And Thomas speaks up, and then what is Jesus's reactions to you? Is he's like, well, here we go again. Let's try this one more time. You know, what are the nonverbal? What's the tone of voice? The exchange that's happening? Is it a rolling of the eyes? Is it a welcoming of question? Jesus here famously responds, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father." In other words. No one belongs in this room apart from me. No one gets into this room, this presence, the kind of intimate connection that he seems to have in mind without Jesus being part of the connection and the equation. Now, for some of us that might feel like an unfair assertion especially in a cultural climate in which we really want to honor differences that exist among us, right? I want to honor differences between cultures and differences that exist among us. I don't want everyone to be the same, and neither do you. 
So how do we process what Jesus is claiming here in light of those concerns that a modern person might bring to this kind of dialogue? How can Jesus claim to be the exclusive way to God, to a secure life in God's presence? That is the claim that he's making about himself. He's saying essentially, I'm the map. (laughs) I'm the road map. I'm the way. I'm the door. I'm the road uh, into this way of belonging with God, belonging to him as a family member in his very presence to you having a room in God's house. The other words that Jesus tags onto this, the truth and the life, amplify what the importance of what he's saying. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, if you want to get on with a truthful, honest life, if you want to live a life that maps on to even your truest form of humanity, if you want to map onto a life that's honestly with God, then you must pass through this space of life with Jesus. Jesus is at the centerpiece of that. He's the hinge to this kind of life. N.T. Wright observes that while we might feel really good about looking on world religions or even our own personal take on religion or faith or personal philosophy of life, while we might want to look on all these types of behaviors and things as a one road, you know, all roads lead to God type of an action, he says that God's approach is not that. That's what he's saying here in this text. Jesus is saying, I'm the approach. Pass through me and you connect with the real God. N.T. Wright says the problem with not going that way is just this, that all that we're left with is a gesture towards a remote, a distant, and an ultimately unknowable God. He remains out there, hovering somewhere. We have little access to the real God. But the assertion of Christianity is that God is knowable precisely because he isn't remote. He's near. He's present to creation. He's interactive. And he's ultimately most personally interactive in the person of who Jesus is. Striking up conversations with human beings until finally he speaks in the Son, in Jesus himself. So Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. As we go through the space of Christian theology, we know that doctrine of the Trinity is sort of surfacing here in different kinds of ways. But what Jesus is very simply saying here is that the unity between himself and the Father is so substantive that you can say, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. As he goes on in this particular passage, in parts of the text that we didn't read, he'll begin to talk about the gift of the Spirit that he intends to give the church. And he tells the followers of Jesus that they will do the kinds of works and greater works than him even. In other words, as you see the fruit of the Spirit in the life of another, maybe we could even say you've seen the presence of God. Jesus claims that God hasn't left us to our imaginations when it comes to knowing God. 
Jesus makes God physically present and manifest in our world. God entered the vulnerability of human existence. Some people heard his literal voice at a particular moment in time. They did reach out and touch. They watched him eat meals. They watched Jesus touch other people. They encountered God present. Yes, differently than we encounter God present. But they encountered him in time as present. Christians, even at this very early moment of the writing of John's gospel, realize there's something unique about Jesus that allows them to say, we're not playing an elaborate game of pretend because God's come near. They knew that if they wanted to know the the invisible God, that what they needed to do was they kept telling the Jesus story. (laughs) And so we have four gospel accounts of the Jesus story that bring us into the, the story of his life. So that even now, generations later, we're able to go back to the Jesus story and say, Wait, what, what happened when God became man? What are those stories? What did Jesus say? What did he do? How did he love? How did he interact with injustice? How did he interact with the problem of suffering and pain in our world? How did he connect with power and how did he live with his own power? We're able to come back to his story over and over again. Because God hasn't left human beings in the dark about who he is. He came into our world at a particular moment in time. At the beginning of the bulletin, there's a quote from Flannery O'Connor. Some of you know that we, we have a love relationship with Flannery O'Connor in our household. But this is from her prayer journals where you get a little more intimate look into her own life of faith. And she says here just very plainly, I do not know God because I am in the way. I do not know God because I am in the way. As you and I think about this problem of knowing God one of the first things we might ask is how do we get out of the way? And one of the answers that I would offer and extend is just this. Ask some questions. Don't show up in the presence of God with all of your answers. Become a little more humble. Hold your hands open around the things that feel so certain to you. Even if you've been a Christian for such a very long time, live with the certainties of your faith with an open hand because you're not God. I'm not God. Bring your questions to him. The only way to know God is to circle back to these stories of Jesus over and over again. It's interesting here in this particular set of interactions between Jesus and the disciples that even after he says these things, they're still confused, right? I mean, they still don't get him. And there's, I find such comfort in that. And Jesus' answer to them in that moment is, look, even if you can't believe the things I'm saying, believe the works I'm doing. When you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Those works are things like washing the disciples' feet. Those works are feeding the hungry. Those works are healing the sick. Those works are God in person in our world, not grasping at power the way everyone else with power in the world grasps at power. 
but letting it trickle through his hands unto the death on the cross where he dies. The Apostle Paul says, God has looked at this work of Jesus and raised him up and given him the name that is above all other names. You see, the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to is to a faith that actually fits our natures. You're a person in the world, and he invites you to look at the works that he has done and is doing in Jesus and throughout history and even today as the Spirit animates our lives personally and as a community to engage brokenness. And for us to look at those things and say, there is God. He's shown up. He still interacts. How can I know God? Only if he acts in a way that fits the persons he's made us. And God wants to strike up a conversation with you because he's made you to be like him in his image, someone that he can converse with. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, um, we have such varied experiences of the church and of Jesus, of our understanding and knowledge of faith. Um, and we pray that as we enter this new year, that we would hold our certainties with open hands and we would be willing to become curious and to have questions of you and particularly of Jesus. So help us to come back to the gospel stories and see the beauty of our Savior, the one who reveals the invisible God to us. Will you lead us and will you give us hope and will you help us to take next steps of faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The offerings of time when we offer our hearts, our lives, our gifts to God. Uh, let's, let's do that now.